0: Continue with me in a spirit of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray for every person, every soul in this room. For those this morning, Lord, who are coming with hearts that are in darkness, I pray that your light will break through. For those who are coming in grief in despair, anxiety, fear, depression, I pray, Lord, that you would fill their hearts and their minds with hope. For those who are coming this morning, were are sick and struggling in pain. I pray, Lord, that you would heal them in the name of Jesus. I pray, Lord, for those who've come this morning and are drowning in shame and guilt. I pray, Lord, that the blood of Jesus, his mercy and his grace would pour over them, cleansing them from all unrighteousness and making them clean. I pray, Lord, that every heart in this room will be met by your spirit exactly where They need it. And I stand before you this morning, Lord, and I acknowledge that there is nothing of any spiritual significance, nothing of any eternal value that will happen this morning unless it is by your spirit alone. So bless these words, bless us with your presence that we can feel with power. Change us, Lord. In Jesus' name. And we will pray together the words you taught us to pray. And if you don't know the Lord's Prayer, the words are on the screen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks, Mike. My, uh, many years ago, uh, I was 14. My sister Jody was 16. And we were just your basic boogerhead teenagers. You know, we did all things. If we could get away with it, we would. We fought all the time. And it was the first weekend that uh, my my parents left us home alone for the weekend. My dad's right here in the front row, so he can testify to this. And they were going to Lamar's Iowa to visit grandpa and grandma, and we were left home alone. So we got the litany of the rules, you know, for the weekend. And of course, we uh, we knew we were gonna completely ignore them. And I, I remember that it was really only a few friends that we invited over. But you know small towns and high schools, word spread. Well's parents are out of town. Everybody at Vanderwell's house. And people just kept coming and coming and coming. And then of course, people brought alcohol. And I don't know exactly when it was that I knew things were out of control. I think it was when members of the football team got a ladder and climbed up on the house, the roof of the house and challenged each other to see who could successfully jump from the house to the detached garage roof. Yeah, neighbors would never notice, right? Yeah, a couple months later, my sister and I, uh, we gave our lives to Christ. We prayed a prayer. We're in a church just like this, and we walked, came down to the, the front and got down on our knees, and we prayed a prayer and asked Jesus to come into our lives and be Lord and Savior, and we surrendered our lives to Christ. And it was a couple of months later that my parents, again, Dad can can share the story, testify to this, but a couple of years, uh, months later, my parents were going, what has happened to our children? Tom and Joy could always stand to be in the same room together. They're typical teenagers. Fight, bicker, great, argue. And now all of a sudden they, they're just so loving and kind to one another. These are our kids that, man, you know, Everything in their life has just changed. They were disobedient rebels having parties when we were gone, and now they just they become, we tell them what to do, and they're like, yeah, and they do what we ask. And something had changed in our lives, and it was that change that birthed a spiritual renewal in our family. So here's a question as we start this morning for our neighborhood groups. Can we get the uh, question up on the screen here? As we get together uh, with people just around you, here's the question. Have you witnessed a positive change in an individual's temperament or behavior resulting from their faith, their relationship with Jesus Christ? Somebody you know personally. Now, it might be you, and that's awesome, or it might be somebody that you know. So get together in your groups and share who you know who has changed because of Jesus. Go ahead. All right, let's uh, bring it back in. We're thinking about, about change. This is the first Sunday in Lent, and we're thinking about change. I don't know if we have any Yellowstone fans in the room. Any Yellowstone fans? Yeah. We were about, about part of the way through the season, and the, the, the most amazing character in, in the show Yellowstone is Beth Dutton because she's just this brash, raw, foul-mouthed, cigarette-smoking, hard-drinking, oh, force of nature. And about, about it was about halfway through the first season, and I it struck me. I looked at Wendy and I said, "You know what, Wendy? Beth Dutton is you without Jesus." And she'll agree. She, yes. Yeah, she's nodding her head. She agrees. So what has changed? This Lenten season, we're going to be going through um, conversations from people in the book of John, episodes in which people have had conversations with Jesus and their lives have changed because of Jesus. And we're going to be looking at that. So uh, to kick us off today, we're going to be... T- look at the conversation Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus. We're in John chapter three. For my note takers and Bible studyers, grab your Bible, open John three. If you uh, grab in your pew Bible, it's page 1051. And I want to start out, I want to give you some background as we get into this. Uh, First of all, the Gospel of John, if we could have slide number four, please. The Gospel of John is different than Matthew, Mark, Luke. These are the four sort of biographies of Jesus in the Bible. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell Jesus' story chronologically uh, from beginning to end. It's almost like a, a, a real kind of biography. John is completely different. John arranges his Gospel thematically and while it does sort of follow a loose chronology, he he does things different. He he will like have a talk about a blind man receiving his sight, and then give a message in which Jesus said, "I am the light of the world." He tells the story of Jesus feeding the five thousand, and then about Jesus saying, "I am the bread of life." So he he's using God's uh, Jesus' words and his actions to tell and, and something specific about Jesus and about us. So as we go through this, I, uh, in Lent, I want you to be thinking about this because it should bring some questions to mind. Number one, why did John pick this person? Why did John pick Nicodemus' conversation? And who does Nicodemus represent in our world today? And as we go through each message, I, these three questions should come back to you. Who do they represent in our world today? And how can this episode, this conversation, inspire change in me? Okay? So that, a little bit about where we're going. Next, I want to think a little bit about Jesus and Nicodemus. If I was doing, a, I was going to play Nicodemus in a play or a TV show, I would do a character study. So thinking about who Nicodemus is, and especially in this scene where he's coming to Jesus, one of the things we find out is that that Nicodemus was a huge contrast. So Nicodemus, if we look up here on the screen, he was a prominent figure. Uh, If you were a Pharisee, you were prominent, you stood out, you were the cream of the crop, everybody looked to you uh, from kind of a religious perspective. He had at least some formal education, so he was an educated man, we take pride in that, I'll explain that a little bit more in a second. He came from Jerusalem, which Jerusalem's like Washington, D.C., it is the seat of power. Now, in Israel in this day, it was the religious leaders who really were the local government. They're the ones who made the laws and kept the laws and kept the Jewish people in line. They were under Roman occupation, but it wasn't to Rome that everybody answered. They answered to the religious leaders, okay? So Nicodemus was one of them. He'd be like a politician from Washington, D.C., coming to to Iowa and talking to us, that kind of a thing. He was institutionally entrenched. He was part of the establishment. He was part of the, the rule makers and the rule keepers. He had power to make judgments. He sat in the meetings, like in the... Musical Hamilton, he was in the room where it happened. You know what I mean? Part of the ruling council. Now, Jesus, and we don't think about this very much, but when Jesus started his ministry, he was obscure. He started his ministry at 30 because that was part of the law. You couldn't be a rabbi until you hit 30. Up to that point, he'd, just been, a, he'd been a carpenter. He didn't know, he didn't, this, was, this was a new thing. No formal education. He was from Nazareth, and you know how like every four years in the Iowa caucuses we know that all the reporters come from the coast from New York and L.A., and they interview people at the Iowa caucuses, and it's almost like a a joke, you know? Oh, we're in Iowa. Well, that's the way Nazareth was. In fact, when the disciples went to Nathaniel and said, hey, Nathaniel, we found the Messiah. You should come and follow us. He's from Nazareth, and Nathaniel said... Does anything good come from Nazareth? That's where Jesus came from. So he's a nobody. He's an outsider. Nicodemus is in the institution, in the system. Jesus exists outside of it. When he started his ministry, nobody had heard of him. He had no worldly standing. So we have this huge contrast Now another thing about Nicodemus—he was a Pharisee. So let's talk real quick about Pharisees. pharisees there were in this this religious slash political system. There were three major parties, kind of like we have—you know—Democrat, Republican, and Libertarian, and you know whatever. There were three major parties in the religious establishment. One was the Essenes. They uh, were—they lived in caves down by the Dead Sea. They were kind of hermits and monks. They were kind of weird, and we really don't see the Essenes much in the stories of Jesus. The second one were the Sadducees, and the Sadducees were typically made up of the elite. They were rich, nobility, they had the money, and they believed that, you know, their stuff didn't stink, and they kind of lived that way. The Pharisees were the most, the, the biggest. And the most powerful of these three groups. The Pharisees were typically made up of um, of these middle to upper middle mid-class businessmen who loved the prominence. Okay? They loved being prominent. They loved from the what they wore on their robes to what they said and how they conducted themselves in, in society, they uh, were prominent, wanted everybody to know that they were awesome and they were great. The, uh, the way that the Pharisees were structured was that even if you didn't have any formal education, there was a hierarchy of Pharisees. And so the highest one was the scribes. And the scribes were formally educated lawyers, not in, in civil law, but in the law of Moses. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They were experts on Moses' law. And so they would teach those underneath them, and then uh, we don't know if Nicodemus was a scribe or if he was somebody underneath that, but even then they would take what they learned about the law from the scribes and they would go out and they would teach everybody in the synagogues uh, in the various towns uh, around Israel. And so they were the teachers. They were the ones that people listened to. But it was really more like they weren't uh, so much... uh, yeah, they weren't so much teachers as they were tattletales. You know what I'm talking about? They're the, they're the ones that would l- be looking for people to do things wrong and then get on their case and condemn them. Uh, they're like the stories we hear in Pella of receiving an anonymous letter in the mail saying we really don't mow our lawn on Sundays. You know, That's, that's a Pharisee thing to do, right? There is a law and we're gonna hold you to it. Well, the Pharisee system really was a fundamental, a fundamentalist system. And what I mean by that is fundamentalism, we think of as a religious thing, but the reality is is that fundamentalism is really about a human system, and it can be any kind of human system. You could have a political party that is fundamentalist. You could have a business whose culture is fundamentalist. You could have a fundamentalist family And it could be a fundamentalist religion. And every religion in the world has its fundamentalist sects. So the Pharisees were fundamentalists. Well, what does that mean? Here are four um, things that are true about fundamentalist systems. So let's just go through this real quick Unwavering attachment to irreducible beliefs. When I was in college, I spent one semester at a fundamentalist. Baptist College. Uh, I could only last one semester uh, with them, and they could only last one semester with me. So what I learned about fundamentalism in this one semester at a fundamentalist Baptist school is, you know, unwavering attachment to irreducible beliefs. What that really means is we're right. (laughs) We are right, and everybody else is wrong. So when I had my my uh, hermeneutics class. Hermeneutics is just a fancy word for how to interpret the Bible. And it was funny because my professor, it didn't matter. We would go through the history of Christian theology and everybody was wrong. Everybody was heretic. From Augustine to Martin Luther even didn't believe some things that were wrong. And Calvin believed things that were wrong. The only person who believed everything right was my professor and the school. All right. Everybody else is wrong. So we had to follow this. Now, next, strict literalism applied to specific dogmas or ideology. There is a rule, and you keep the rule above all else. The Pharisees were like that as well. It was the law of Moses, and that's why they call it no, God said you don't do any work on the Sabbath. Well, then they're like going, Yes, but what is work? So they would come up with these literal sub rules to define what work was. And so if you picked up a stick and you carried it so many steps, that was work and then you'd broken the law and it just became this really weird thing. Same thing happened in my fundamentalist school. Uh, One of the rules was that that young men had to wear short hair. Had to. And we even had an entire lecture on how we know Jesus had short hair. And why? Well the Roman emperor. If Julian had short hair, we can see it on the statue. So Jesus, that, that was the fashion of the day. Jesus would have had short hair. Which is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. Like Jesus was a slave to Roman fashion. Not only that, he's from Nazareth and he's Jewish and one of the most popular thing for Jewish men to do was to take a Nazarite vow. Which means what? You didn't cut a hair on your head ever. So the idea that somehow Jesus had short hair was just ridiculous. But we will make up whatever we have to make up in order to keep our specific dogmas and ideologies. That's fundamentalist. Strong sense of maintaining in-group and out-group distinctions. If you are in, you are in. But if you don't belong to the system, you are out. And so the Pharisees here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, they're not sure They don't know him. He's obscure. We don't know this dude from Nazareth. We're not sure if he's in or out. Eventually, the Pharisees are going to determine that Jesus is out. And they're going to turn on him, and they're going to kill him. See, we have to be in and out. When I was in my my Baptist school, I was a commuter. So I came from my home in the more I lived in home, and I would drive to the campus and I'd go to class. I learned right away in the first couple of days of class that being a commuter, I was out. I was out, nobody talked to me. <laughs> nobody would sit by me in chapel. Nobody, it was sort of like I was just invisible. Why? Because I was suspect. See, in the, in the fundamentalist system, All of the students who lived on campus lived under the school's control. They had their eyes on them all the time. We can control your behavior. We know whether you're good or you're bad. But if I come from off campus, I was suspect because I might be heretical. I might be a wolf in sheep's clothing coming from the darkness of the world. Every day I left class, I went back to the world. Who knows what darkness I'm bringing on campus with me? In, out. Okay? And it was all leading to this sense of purity and ideal. And the Pharisees, they believed that by keeping the law and wearing your robes and doing all the things, you would reach this pinnacle of, of God's holiness and purity. The same way fundamentalist Christian systems, it's about following the rules, making sure that we're doing the right thing. So... Let's go ahead and jump into John chapter three. You thought we'd never get there, didn't you? All right. As we looked at John chapter three at the beginning, the thing that I want us to understand about Nicodemus as we begin reading this story, who does he represent? He represents those of us who were raised in the institutional church. He represents those of us who are card carrying, Baptized members of the establishment. And I, you know, I get it. I was raised, I was baptized in the church, raised in church too, so I'm one of them. But I meet people, I mean when I moved to Pell, I'd meet people, and as they're telling the story, people would say, Oh, I've gone to third church my whole life. As though, you know, I did I was there before it was cool. You know, we we love that. We're part of the establishment. We know the things. We've been raised, we did the classes, we did all these things, and here we are. So let's look at chapter 3. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, as we just described, He was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So not only was he a Pharisee, but he was part of the ruling council of the Pharisees. He came to Jesus at night. And if you're one of my, my uh, note takers and Bible scholars, make sure that you, you circle that or underline that. He came at night and he said, Rabbi, we, plural, we Pharisees, know that you are a teacher who has come from God, okay, interesting. Now, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. What's really interesting is that Nicodemus says this, well, this is still at the very beginning of the story. In just a couple of chapters, the same Pharisees are going to say, you are of the devil, and it's by the power of the devil that you are doing these things. Why? Because Jesus didn't, fit the system so he had to be heretical he had to be somebody that no one would trust and so the, the, it changed from these miracles are of god to these miracles are of the devil because you are out you don't follow you're not right the way we are right well jesus replied very truly i tell you no one can see the kingdom of god unless they are born again Nicodemus says, how can someone be born when they're, not, when they're old? Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. So time out. I want you to see the difference here. The Pharisees were strict literalists. So when Jesus says, you must be born again, he's thinking about going back into the mother's womb and being born. Jesus is speaking in metaphor. Something that represents something else without using like or as. And God, God's language, his base language is metaphor. Through the entire Bible, he uses metaphors to describe who he is. And so we now have this disconnect because the fundamentalist literalist is not understanding the son of God who is speaking in metaphor. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, Nicodemus, that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water, that's the physical, the water breaks, the baby's born, and the spirit, capital S. There are two births, water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, spirit gives birth to spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Now, what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is something that that you might not get in just reading the story. See, the Hebrew word, he's a literalist. He is of the law. They're the ones who are the teachers of the law. And the word for Spirit, both in the Hebrew and the Greek languages, is breath, wind. Ruach, Numa. So Jesus is basically saying to, look, spirit of God is like the wind. That's why I'm using metaphor, because don't you understand? And it's like the wind. Sometimes God is is so out there that we we use a concept that we can hardly get our our, our fingers around. The wind blows where it pleases. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going to. You, Nicodemus, you've got God reduced down into your little box of rules and regulations. But the the Spirit of God is like a wind that you can't get your hands around. And if you want to see the kingdom of God, you're going to have to be born of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is going to have to blow into your life. And you're going to have a new birth, not a physical one, but a spiritual one, a point at which everything begins to change. How can this be, Nicodemus asks, verse 9, 10. Wait a minute. You are Israel's teacher. You are the one who sits under the scribes. You're the one who proclaims with the rest of your your cronies and the Pharisees that you are the teachers, the one who will tell everybody the truth, and you don't get this? You're Israel's teacher, and you don't understand these things? I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify what we've seen. People don't accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things you don't believe. How then will I speak of heavenly things? So here's the point for those of us who have been raised in the institutional church. What he is saying is you can be a lifelong member, baptized, Sunday school merit badge, certificate of confirmation, profession of faith, lifelong membership, tithing, giving, here every Sunday, and still not get what God is about. You can be a religious person and not be born again. For those of us who've lived our whole lives in the church, that's what we need to understand about Nicodemus and that is what should we should be thinking about. Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes, and if you're taking notes, circle that, whoever believes shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes, there it is again, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him stands condemned already because they have not believed. Stop. In a fundamentalist system, let's be honest, it's about merit. It's about rule keeping. And for those of us who were raised in the church or we were raised in a fundamentalist home, it is always about the rule keeping. Doing the right thing, not doing the wrong thing. And now Jesus comes along, and the Son of God now shows up on the scene, and he's saying, Nicodemus, you got got it all wrong. It's not about rule-keeping. It's about whether you believe. And not only that, we're talking about whether you're going to get into the kingdom of God. We're talking about eternal life. The ones who are going to inherit eternal life believe in the Son of Man. But if you don't believe, you stand condemned. Now notice that. He doesn't say, if you don't follow the rules, if you don't live a good life, if you, if you don't do it the, our way, if we don't toe the line and do the religious thing, you won't get into heaven. He says, no, you are condemned if you don't believe. There's a book called Imagine Heaven that, um, by John Burke, which talks about people who've had, have died, literally died. No brain activity, no heartbeat. They have experienced heaven. Some have experienced hell. And he studied all their stories and tells them, and it's fascinating. And there's one woman who committed suicide. She committed suicide, and she finds herself in hell, but it wasn't like this, you know, it's like the the cartoon with the fire and the pitchfork. She described it as complete and utter Darkness, isolation, nothingness. And in this dark place, she could tell there are other people around, all over. But nobody's talking. And everybody seems to be in their own form of self-despair and loathing. So she's describing this and she's kind of accepting the fact that this is where I belong because I just committed suicide. And she sees this, um, this what looks like a man, but he's, he's shriveled and emaciated. It kind of reminds me of Gollum in The Lord of the Rings, you know, he's that kind of person. And she said he was wearing this robe like they wear in The, the, the Chosen in the Jesus films. And she thinks to herself, I wonder if that's Judas Iscariot. And as soon as she thinks this, she sees a pinprick of light in the distance. She starts to look at it and it grows 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 and, it grows, and it grows until Jesus is standing in front of her. And the light is so bright that she can hardly stand, it's almost painful. And so she's standing in this light, and they begin having this conversation about her suicide and why she's here. And then she begins to notice that, that all of the people around her and the little shriveled guy on the floor, they seem not to notice Jesus at all. They don't seem to hear the conversation that the two of them are having. And she stops. She says, Jesus, why, why aren't, doesn't anybody else here see you? Why don't they hear you and Jesus said because they're not willing. Whoever doesn't believe stands condemned. Not by what they've done but by their unwillingness to believe and then she said why are you here for me? And Jesus said, when you looked at that one and said, maybe that's Judas Iscariot, there was just this glimmer of hope that you might believe. So I've come, and now I am going to send you back to your body, back to your life, and it's a new birth, a spiritual birth. And from here on out, your life is going to be different. The verdict is this, verse 19. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. You know when I was, uh, we have some friends, Wendy and I, that were from Pella, and, uh, and I'm not from Pella. I moved here in 2004, and so we know them. They live in Des Moines and other places, and at, from time to time, we'll say, you know what? I'd love it if you guys would just move back to Pella where you were raised, and we could hang out together and, uh, more often, and they'll be like, no way am I moving back to Pella. And when we ask, well, why not? The answer that we consistently get is because people, because it's not real. It's not real, I know the people I grew up with. And then they describe some kind of thing where they were, yeah, they were prominent, upstanding, religious, went to church, looked like they kept the rules, did all of these things, but then you would see them during the week and they were, and they are not the people that they pretend to be. I heard one guy say, yeah, know this guy? He would drive his years-old Buick around town and, and dress in his jeans and his flannel shirt and live in this modest house, but every winter he goes down south where it's warm, where he has a mansion and a Jaguar and two Harleys. Got to put on the show that I'm all humble and, and poor and frugal in Pella, but that's not who I am, really. I was a a youth pastor in Marshalltown for a couple years right out of college. And there was a a counselor that would come every week for one day and he'd counsel people from the church. He was from Des Moines. Um, He had a doctorate in psychology, a brilliant man. And I remember he came in, whenever somebody wouldn't show up to to a session, he would come in uh, and just hang out and talk to me. And I remember him saying this. He said, Pella, Iowa is the most... Unhealthy community from a mental health perspective that I work in. And I said, why? And then he described a fundamentalist system where people have to look a certain way and people have to act a certain way and people have to attain a certain level of behavior. And not only do they have to do that, but their children have to do that so that the children don't bring shame on the family. And he said, but the problem is, is that it's all about doing the thing to be seen. He said, but meanwhile, at home or by themselves or in the quiet or in their winter home, there are things happening in the darkness. There's a lot of unhealth. There are are secrets. And there are sins. And there are really nasty things. But we can't expose them to the light. We have to keep up our appearances. And the more we hide those things and stuff those things so that nobody sees them, my counselor friend said, all of a sudden you're living two lives. So Jesus comes to Nicodemus and he says, look, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. Now I want you to notice that back in verse two, Nicodemus came at night in the darkness, didn't he? Because he didn't want anybody to see him coming to see Jesus. And Jesus ends his conversation by saying, Nicodemus, do you want to be part of the kingdom of God? You've got to expose the darkness to the light. And you have to walk into the light. And how do you do that? By believing by having a new spiritual birth. So Nicodemus, what does Nicodemus inspire? How does he inspire change in me? Quick, I'm gonna ask the worship team to come on up. Number one, believe. It's not about behavior, it's about whether I believe. It's about whether I have embraced the gospel and invited God's spirit into our heart. That's what spawns rebirth. More humility. This whole book is about humans that get it wrong. (laughs) We like to think that we have it all right. But Nicodemus reminds me that I have to be humble about the fact that I, even I, God may not always fit inside my little box. In fact, number three, I need to embrace the mystery. God does exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or imagine. So if he's beyond my imagination, then there's mysteries that I don't even get. And I need to understand that. And we need to love more. Because Jesus came not to condemn, but to love us to salvation. As we worship, elders and deacons will be here for communion. We're going to have prayer uh, ministers here. If you need (laughs) a rebirth this morning, if you need a spiritual renewal, come down, talk to our our prayer warriors, and, and they'd love to pray with you and begin that process today.